Hello and welcome to The Almost Forgotten, the podcast that looks at the lives of great historical figures who have fallen through the cracks of our collective memories. This episode will start a three-part series on the Hussite Wars. I started doing this three-parter by doing research on Jan Zizka, a legendary Czech general and leader during these wars. But while I could fit his life into one episode, just barely, explaining the context of the Hussite Wars was just too much for it and the story around the circumstances in his life were too interesting to limit it to just his lifespan. So, out came a three-parter. Before we get into the wars and Zizka and what came after him, we'll spend an entire episode essentially setting the scene. As always, maps and images can be found on the website, almostforgotten.squarespace.com. You can email me at almostforgottenpodcast at gmail.com, or find me on Twitter, at... The Almost Forgot. With that, let's get started on the series. This is Season 5, Episode 6, The Hussite Wars, Part 1, and this is The Almost Forgotten. The Hussite Wars are considered to have started in 1419 with the defenestration of Prague. No, not that defenestration of Prague, the first defenestration of Prague. But the wars came about thanks to a few key events that led up to that event. Interestingly, one of the final acts of the Hussite cause was the second defenestration of Prague. But we're not anywhere near that yet. And before we even get into the Hussite cause, let's see what's happening in the rest of the world. Starting outside of Europe, the Ottomans ruled most of Anatolia, and actually most of the Balkans, including Greece at this point, while the Eastern Roman Empire was confined to a small area around Constantinople. At the beginning of the 15th century, North Africa was ruled by a variety of states, including the Mameluk Sultanate in Egypt. The Mali Empire was strong in West Africa, although maybe not quite as strong as when the great Arab historian Ibn Khaldun visited there in the middle of the 14th century. In eastern Africa, the Abyssinian, or Ethiopian Empire, vied for supremacy with the nearby Ifat, then Adal Sultanate. Further east, Tamerlane ruled an empire that stretched from Mesopotamia east across the Iranian plateau into the northern Indus River Valley, and north into Central Asia and the Aral Sea region. He even sacked Delhi in 1398, dealing a major blow to the previously powerful Delhi Sultanate. Other states in India included the Bengal Sultanate and the Vijayanagara Empire in the south. The Golden Horde ruled over the steppe to the north and west of Timur's empire, while to the north and east lay a few more successor khanates. South of them, the Ming Dynasty was a major world power after overthrowing the Mongol Yuan Dynasty in the middle of the 14th century. In Southeast Asia, small states ruled Myanmar, while the Sukhothai kingdom was waning and the Ayutthaya kingdom was waxing in Thailand. The Khmer Empire had pretty much collapsed in Cambodia, and Parameswara was establishing a new kingdom and a new trading center at Malacca. Across the ocean, the Aztec Empire didn't form until about 1430, but the Mexica people and the three city-states that made it up, Tenochtitlan, Texcoco, and Tlacopan, were already flourishing. 
In Peru, the small kingdom of Cusco was about to begin the reorganization and eventual expansion under Sapa Inca Pachacuti that would have it reigning over most of the region as the Incan Empire. And in North America, the Middle Mississippian culture, which had influenced much of what is now the central and eastern United States, was probably beginning to decline. Back to Europe, Henry IV ruled England and dealt with uprisings from Owain Glendore and others. His son Henry V would help him quell these, and then, as king, beat up the French at Agincourt in 1415. France was a mess. King Charles VI was literally insane, at least at times, and because of this, the kingdom wasn't really united in rule. Iberia was divided between Portugal, Castilla, and Aragon, and the Emirate of Granada in the south. In northern Europe, the kingdoms of Denmark, Sweden, and Norway were in a personal union. Russia was made of disunited principalities that were vassals to the Golden Horde. Hungary was dealing with both dynastic struggles and the new threat to the southeast, under its German-born king, Sigismund, of the House of Luxembourg. We'll be hearing plenty from him soon enough. Yogaila, or Władysław Yogewa, was both king of Poland and the Grand Duke of Lithuania, creating a personal union of the two states, ruling from the Black Sea almost all the way to the Baltic Sea. On the Baltic Sea, including Prussia and Estonia, the Teutonic Order reigned, crusading against the pagans of the region for centuries, and eventually just fighting Poland and Lithuania over territory. This ongoing conflict fed animosity between the Germanic and Slavic peoples. And of course, most of the rest of Europe was covered by the Holy Roman Empire. It stretched from the Duchy of Burgundy in the west on the border with France, and it included the Low Countries, of course, never any trouble there, across all northern Italy, all of Germany and Austria, and the Kingdom of Bohemia. Now, the Kingdom of Bohemia was a part of the Holy Roman Empire, but it was special. And by special, I mean... Okay, I'm not going to get into all of the convoluted politics of the Holy Roman Empire, because it's not totally relevant. But by the early 1200s, what was once the Duchy of Bohemia was officially elevated to the Kingdom of Bohemia. So Bohemia had some modicum of official independence from the emperor and the empire. Succession of the crown didn't need imperial approval. They didn't have to support the emperor in everything he did, and so on. But it was also a constituent and important part of the empire. Its king was one of the seven prince-electors, those who got to choose who gets named emperor. By the end of the 14th century, the king of Bohemia controlled a region known as the Crown Lands of Bohemia, which included, besides Bohemia proper, the Margravate of Moravia, the Duchies of Silesia, and a region known as Lusatia. Today's Czech Republic essentially consists of Bohemia in the west and Moravia in the east. Silesia and Lusatia are to the north in today's eastern Germany and western Poland. According to John Claussen in the New Cambridge Medieval History, Quote, the population of these lands consisted of a mixture of Czechs, Germans, Poles, Lusatian Serbs, and Jews. In Bohemia, by the beginning of the 15th century, the Czech language was used by noble courts and town councils to record business, by chroniclers to describe the past, and by religious writers to inspire the faithful, unquote. So, besides the odd dynamic of the political structure of the Kingdom of Bohemia, 
The Bohemians themselves, as well as the Moravians, were Slavic rather than Germanic peoples. This led to some animosities, and many Slavs felt they were under the thumb of the aggressive Germans, especially as the Germanic Teutonic state was constantly at war with the Slavic peoples of Poland and the Baltics. Bohemia, and Prague in particular, was an integral part of the Holy Roman Empire. So integral, in fact, that it was basically the empire's capital at the end of the 14th century. King Wenceslas was king of Bohemia, and his father, King Charles IV of Bohemia, became Holy Roman Emperor in 1346. Charles made Prague his capital, and Wenceslas did as well, although Wenceslas was only king of Bohemia and king of the Germans, never officially crowned as emperor. In 1400, he was deposed as king of the Germans, although he maintained the Bohemian crown, and the imperial court departed Prague. Part of the reason Wenceslas was deposed was because he was dealing with rebellion in Bohemia. Not the Hussite rebellion yet. This was more of a disagreement that was at times violent. The Bohemian nobility claimed that Wenceslas was trampling all over their rights as highborn fancy people. Bohemia itself was a typical medieval European state within the empire. It had landed gentry. According to Klassen, there were about 2,000 of these families at the time, divided into an upper and lower class of nobles and gentlemen. Many of the lower group were not living at a level much higher than a typical peasant farmer. But in Bohemia, peasants often held land, and there was, as he put it, quote, no great hunger for land, unquote. Wenceslaus was actually arrested during the conflict with the other Bohemian lords, and his half-brother, Sigismund, that king of Hungary, helped broker a truce. Sigismund was named heir to the Bohemian crown as a reward, and the rebellion continued on and off until concessions were given to the nobility in 1405. This ended up increasing baronial power in Bohemia. The region was near the confluence of the two churches, the Roman-centered Catholic Church and the Eastern Church, essentially based in Constantinople. The Turks didn't take that city until 1452, but at this point the Byzantine Empire was pretty much toast. Still, Bohemia sat comfortably in the Catholic fold, with Catholic Hungary and Poland to their east. But further east, within alliance-worthy distance, were what was left of the Eastern Roman Empire, plus Russian principalities, Eastern Hungary, and the Eastern Slavic areas that were Christian. At the time, despite the efforts of Matilda of Tuscany and Hildebrand three centuries earlier, the Catholic Church was not a shining example of piety. Indulgences still allowed the Church to collect money in order to absolve sin. Simony, or the buying of Church positions, was still prevalent. Bishops and other Church leaders were often rich, fat, happy, and illicitly so, at the expense of the people. Add to this a Western schism that had set up a rival papacy to Rome in Avignon, France, and it wasn't exactly Rome's best era. Thus entered Jan Hus. Hus was a well-educated Czech priest, born about 1369 in Bohemia. By about 1402, he had become a leader in the city of Prague, the rector of the University of Prague, and was starting to advocate for church reform. He became influenced by the English philosopher and theologian John Wycliffe, and began preaching some of Wycliffe's work. Wycliffe was an English Catholic dissident who believed, among other things, that the Catholic Church of the 14th century 
was essentially a corrupt human institution rather than a divine perfection, which may be pretty clear to us today, but back then it was like literally blasphemy. He thought people should read the Bible themselves rather than hear it from a priest. Again, a big no-no. And among other things, he insisted on the need for massive reform within the church. He was so influential, though, that although declared a heretic after he died in 1384, that during his life, a rival pope and anti-pope sent agents to England to try to vie for his support. Jan Hus believed in many of Wycliffe's teachings, although not all, and he was mostly interested in reform of the church. Now, this doesn't mean he wanted to start a new church. Sure, he interpreted some of the rules a bit differently, but mostly he wanted to fix the existing Catholic church so it wouldn't be so darn corrupt. He had some pre-Calvinist beliefs of predestination. He believed in preaching the word of God to everyone, and he believed the rich should be maybe not so rich and should be giving money to help the lives of the poor. But he thought these things belonged in the home of the Catholic faith, not as something separate. The Archbishop of Prague supported Hus. But then in 1405, the Pope said Wycliffe's philosophy was indeed naughty after all, and suddenly what Hus was preaching wasn't so hunky-dory. King Wenceslas, though, was pretty cool with what Hus had been saying, as were a bunch of other folks in Prague. Wenceslas may not have fully bought in, or perhaps even cared that much, but his wife, Queen Sophia, did, so he was sympathetic. Hus, being pressed, turned in any writings from Wycliffe he owned and said, hey, anything in there that's wrong, you know, is bad and I don't agree with it. Not sure he specified what actual parts were wrong, though. Eventually, thanks to imperial and papal politics, among other things, Bohemia had a sort of religiously semi-independent position under the protection of Wenceslaus. They, at times, maintained neutrality, other times supported the anti-pope in Avignon, but either way, Hus gathered quite a following in Prague. When the church tried to raise money for a crusade, specifically through ramping up the sale of indulgences, this didn't sit too well with Hus and other reformers. In 1412, after further political turmoil, Hus declared that the only religious authority was God, that is to say, Scripture, and that the Pope and the King were just getting in everyone's way, making stuff up, and generally screwing up Christianity. Sigismund, King of Hungary, as well as King of the Romans now, also known as King of the Germans, and the title that was the step before being declared Holy Roman Emperor, wanted all these schisms done. He probably wasn't a particularly religious man, at least not for his day. He'd be considered incredibly religious today. But Sigismund, who, remember, was Wenceslaus' half-brother and heir to the crown of Bohemia, wanted peace and harmony in his lands, so that he could go spread peace and harmony by killing people through violent warfare in other lands. Conflict had already started. Hus was reinforcing Wycliffe's message more stringently, and more and more Bohemians were following him. So Sigismund invited Hus to a council at the city of Constance, on today's border between Germany and Switzerland, where all of these things were being worked out. He also promised safe passage for Hus, who was certainly in danger of being tried and killed as a heretic. So Hus came, and while there, he continued his preaching. And while it seems the emperor hadn't really brought him to Constance under false pretenses, 
His refusal to stop proselytizing convinced the church to throw him in prison. He was given plenty of opportunities to recant, but he refused, sometimes because he never said the things they accused him of, sometimes because he said it and couldn't recant in good conscience. Actually, he said he'd be happy to recant if they found anything in the Bible that refuted what he was saying. Of course, there was opportunity for everyone to cool their heels. The council could have sent him back to Prague and stripped him of all official rank. Instead, they tried him as a heretic. As a leader of heretics, actually. Of course, he was convicted, and on July 6, 1415, they led him out to be executed. He was offered another chance to recant and be spared. But he was as obstinate as they were, and he continued to refuse. He stated they were convicting him for something he didn't do, and that anything he did do was written in the Bible. So, they tied him to the stake and lit the fire. Thus exited Jan Hus. So, as you might imagine, back in Bohemia, the Czech people were not really happy that the unofficial leader of their unofficial national church was just executed. They immediately threw blame upon the church, of course, but also on King Sigismund, who they said had promised Hus protection and had lured him there just to kill him. The execution of Jan Hus was not the only reason why the people there were unhappy with the empire. But while the religious aspect is the main reason the war started, and his burning certainly helped light the powder keg of Bohemian revolt, there were other drivers. For one thing, there was that long-standing Germanic-Slavic rivalry that was given an opportunity to re-emerge with the growth of Slavic power, specifically against a German adversary in the East. You see, in 1410, just five years before the death of Hus, the Battle of Grunwald, also known as the First Battle of Tannenberg, was fought in northern Poland. The Teutonic Order, as well as allies from Germany and Hungary, fought an invading army of Polish and Lithuanian forces. They invaded because the Teutonic Knights had declared war on both Poland and Lithuania, despite the fact that King Jogaila of Poland was Christian. His cousin Vytautis was his regent and became the Grand Duke of Lithuania in his place when Jogaila married himself into the crown of Poland. Vytautis was supporting uprisings in Teutonic territory in the Baltics. The Knights claimed they were fighting against false Christians who had only converted for show, and they were certainly not incorrect in some cases, but they were probably also fighting mostly over territory. Anyway, the Polish-Lithuanian forces included regiments from other Slavic nations, the Russian principalities, Moldova, Moravia, and Bohemia, among others. Jan Zyska was said to have fought in the battle as part of the Bohemian force. It was a smashing victory for the Slavic allies, and the Teutonic Knights were utterly crushed. From an estimated 10 to 20,000 men, the casualty list could have topped 10,000 for them. The order of the knights itself was demolished. Of 270 official knights, something like 200 were killed. This battle marked the beginning of the end for the Teutonic Knights, but it also sparked a revival of Slavic solidarity in the region, which meant that the Slavic Czechs wouldn't take so well to domination by the Germans to their west. Another factor that helped lead to the uprising in Bohemia was this new thing that people were coming around to understand, which is that maybe your average ordinary guy could actually do things for himself. Maybe you didn't have to, in the case of religion, 
be a priest to get to do all the ceremonies the Bible says, or to read the Bible. Maybe, in the case of government, an average guy ought to have a little say in how he was ruled. Now, there isn't a true demarcation line, and it's too simplified to think people just went from, I don't know, dumb peasants to enlightened merchants in the span of a few generations, which just isn't how things work. But at the same time, it was sort of the end of the Middle Ages and the beginning of the Renaissance. More and more people were getting a little more interested in thinking they might, you know, be able to think for themselves. Now, after the execution of Hus, there wasn't an immediate violent reaction. People did not take to the streets and march on Prague Castle. This is probably in no small part because their own leadership were not the ones to blame. Hus was the confessor-priest to many in the royal court, and Queen Sophia seemed to lead her country in grieving. King Wenceslaus expressed that it was wrong that a man with a letter of safe conduct should be executed. Which is, you know, not super supportive, but like it's something. Soon after his death, though, some of the beliefs that Hus espoused started to be almost held as sacrosanct in Bohemia. I don't want to get too much into the parsing of the religious beliefs of the different sects, but there was one big sticking point that the Bohemians would hold on to, well, religiously. It was known as the communion in the two kinds, or both kinds, And it had to do with the very important rite, that's R-I-T-E, that derives from Christ's Last Supper where he offered his followers bread and wine. The church at the time only offered bread to the lay people, while the priests got to sip the wine. This was done ostensibly because the church only wanted the purest of the pure to do both. But, at a time where the hierarchical and often hypocritical nature of church leadership rubbed people the wrong way, one could see how this was not really appreciated. And, communion of both kinds was practiced in the early church, so some believed that they weren't doing their duty as good Christians if they didn't do both. In essence, doing communion with only bread and not wine was like not doing communion at all to them. Jacob of Mies, one of Jan Hus's followers, insisted that they had to do both kinds, and when Hus agreed, it became a major piece of Hussite practice. Francis Lutzow, in his foundational book, The Hussite Wars, wrote, quote, Sacrament in the two kinds became the characteristic article of faith to which all Bohemian friends of church reform conformed. The chalice became their emblem, and the whole national party was soon known as that of the Utraquists, unquote. This name came from the fact that those who believed in the doctrine were sub utrique, or under both in Latin. The noblemen who stuck with the Catholic practice were known as sub una, or under one, because they were good with just one, just the bread. Now, the medieval churches were, of course, run by priests, so when the priests didn't offer communion of both kinds, people started running them out of town. There was, at times, violence. By about 1417, the Council of Constance, which was still going on, sent a letter saying the Bohemians had better start behaving and stop whining about the execution of Hus and quit all this heresy business, or they'd be sorry. No mention in this letter, by the way, of the church reform that Hus was so interested in. This didn't make the Czech people very happy, and King Wenceslaus, who you probably figured out by now, was not a very strong leader, acquiesced to Rome, 
and started expelling Utrechtist preachers from Prague churches. This was about when people said, enough is enough. These priests started preaching at open-air meetings out in the country, similar to what would be seen early in the Eighty Years' War in the Netherlands, about 150 years later. One such place included a hill a bit over 50 miles, or 80 kilometers, south of Prague. That hill was soon called Tabor, named after a hill in Galilee in the Holy Land. Tens of thousands of people attended these meetings. The sacrament of the two kinds was applied, and the king started shifting uncomfortably on his throne. But remember, the king's general weakness as a ruler was balanced by the strength of Bohemian nobility and many of the magnates and barons were supportive of the Hussite preachers. Nicholas of Hus, no relation to Jan, a high-ranking magnate who may have had his eye on the Bohemian crown, along with other Utrechtist nobles, supported these activities. The gathering at Tabor was no minor thing. There may have been 40,000 people there. In Prague itself, the preaching was limited, but a firebrand preacher named Jan Zielewski started brewing up trouble in the capital. He took advantage of his location in the Bohemian capital by gathering a large group after a sermon and marching them out into the streets. He demanded that any imprisoned Hussites be released, and at some point during the chaos, he took a rock to the head. Zielewski was fine, but the people marching with him were none too happy. They rushed to the town hall, Then, under the direction of a minor nobleman named Jan Zizka, they were able to rush into the town hall. They threw the burgermeister, essentially the mayor, as well as a few other prominent leaders, representatives of the king's authority, out of the window of the building, killing them. This event is known as the first defenestration of Prague, and it is pretty much the point where the Hussite Wars really kicked off. But the Hussite Wars would not have King Wenceslaus to kick around for very long. Although he had at one time sympathized with their plight, before pressure from the Pope convinced him to turn against the Hussites. The first defenestration of Prague took place on July 30th, 1419, and King Wenceslaus died about two weeks later. Some legends say it was from the shock of the event. But he seems to have had a heart attack while on a hunt, so maybe not so much. Wenceslaus, though, had fully turned against the Hussites at this point. He had written to Sigismund to march into Bohemia with an army. Sigismund was already considered a big baddie by the Hussites, who blamed him for that whole executing our leader after promising safe conduct thing. And now, with the death of Wenceslaus, Sigismund was due to inherit the Bohemian crown. He would come for that crown with an army in tow, although it's hard to say he was at the head of the army, because that really wasn't his style. But he would come, intent on not just getting that crown, but on stamping out the heresy in the crown lands, with the Pope on his side. Although not at his side, because that wasn't really the Pope's style. Next episode, we'll get into the real conflict through the life of the great Hussite leader and general, Jan Zizka. Thanks for listening.